everyone, and welcome to this month's conversation here on the Neighbors Church podcast. We are working our way through seven core convictions that we're building out all of our small group leadership trainings on and kind of building uh, a roadway for our church to walk down this year. And we have reached the third conviction of the seven. We started with courage, living courageously in a very compromised age and where the church is so tempted continually to walk away from the authority of Jesus's teachings and his way of life uh, as they are so deeply opposed in this cultural moment. But we stand strong and steadfast and faithful. We then talked about this deep conviction of being a charismatic community, that is a people empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we walk in the wisdom and goodness and revelation and truth of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we Mm -hmm. cry out with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul for him to rend the heavens and come down. When we reach our conviction of being a people of contention or contending, it will be part and parcel that we are empowered for revival. But our third conviction that we're guiding our communities through and into um, this year is to be a people of contemplation the Mm -hmm. contemplative life. And really, this is sort of the bread and butter of a church like Neighbors. We planted this church out of this conviction that the modern church is harried and busied and frenetic in pace and overwhelmed and just as exhausted as anybody else in the world. And myself, I've been engaging with these practices for a number of years and really felt it important that we make the foundation of our church plant a slowness and a stillness, our values, our simplicity and stillness and spirit. Mm-hmm. And so this, this contemplative life conviction for our communities is deep and foundational. I would say it's the bread and butter of our church, but <clears throat> it's actually terribly difficult to practice yeah. the contemplative, contemplative life. And so while we can say it's our bread and butter, it's definitely our value um, practicing our values is very difficult. Yeah, I think that's really the thing mm-hmm. about so much of Christianity is surface level, the practices that we're about to talk about in the contemplative life, they look and sound real good. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, oh, I love that idea. Oh, that sounds wonderful. But then when it really gets down to it, we are talking about practices that counterform us. Remember, our souls are malleable. They are like clay everything is shaping us. So the contemplative life considers, it takes into account what is shaping us and it directly and very intentionally engages with practices that counterform us, that align us with the contours of God's kingdom and the ways of Jesus of Nazareth. The little little, uh, kind of blurb for this conviction goes this way. We want to practice a slowed down spirituality in a hyper-connected, over-busy and exhausted world, recovering ancient practices of Sabbath and contemplative prayer, living by a rule of life and aiming to becoming desert fathers and mothers in the city. So I thought it might be cool just to ask a simple question and let my wife answer it. (laughs) Um, Whenever we start talking about the contemplative life, what comes to your mind? What is what is what is the contemplative life? Uh, you know, I think 
like we talked about the bread and butter at neighbors, you know, we definitely emphasize things like Sabbath, you know, having a weekly Sabbath, a day where you pause um, and you cease from working to consider. I would say um, silence, of course, and solitude days where you are maybe not days, but moments and times a day or so, you know, once a month, even where you are choosing to enter into solitude, where you are alone, you are having time and space, creating margin for your soul. Uh, of course, like, like I said, silence where you're choosing to not use words, but you're sitting in the silence. You're allowing the spirit to commune with at a soul level mm-hmm. where you're not, um, you know, actively contending and seeking God with your words, but you're letting the spirit just commune, commune with you in the quiet. Mm. Uh, of course, prayer too. Prayer is a contemplative practice and there are different ways of praying contemplatively. Is that a word? Contemplatively? You just made it up, nailed it. Dang, man, that's awesome. Uh, and as well, I would say um, just the whole idea of considering um, when in when, whatever we're doing. Taking so, account. Yeah, taking account. So even if we're like on a walk, without our phones and we see a beautiful flower and you just consider the beauty. There's something so powerful in that moment and contemplative that shapes your soul to look at something that's been created by creator God and to um, just, you know, delight in that beauty and consider it. And you mentioned fasting yesterday too, when we were kind of having a precursor conversation on the walk. Yeah. I was also going to say, I do think part of the contemplative life and practicing um, a contemplative life is engaging with the practice of um, fasting because in that fasting, we're really putting ourselves in a metaphorical desert or mm-hmm. wilderness and we're ceasing from something, we're abstaining from something in order to seek God. So if you're hearing these things, like with fasting, that's an easy one. We're like, nope, don't want to get rid of food. I definitely don't want to do that. But you may be hearing uh, these words like, Sabbath, a weekly time to cease all work, rest, rejoice, consider, contemplate creation, contemplate Christ, slow down. You may be saying, wow, that sounds amazing. Or the idea of silence and solitude to get out of the matrix, Mm -hmm. spend a little time in the quiet, get to know your own thoughts, get to know the sensations in your own body in an act of prayer. That may sound really good, but let me ask you, hun. Why are those things so dang hard to do? <laughs> I mean, I was literally having a conversation with my mom just this morning saying, oh, like I don't have moments where I practice solitude, like literally just being alone for 12 hours. I mean, even four hours alone. Yeah, I think that's important to say. It's really difficult. Alexis and I are what the monks would call novitiates. We are <laughs> novices. We are but babes in the land of contemplative practice. Because you just said we little lads. (laughs) We little lads and lasses. I don't know why we're going Irish on this one all of a sudden, but there you have it. So why the difficulty though, Lex? Why why do these things that seem so beneficial and we long for it? uh, It seems like American culture is engineered for this idea of I work, 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 work so I can rest. But there never seems to be that contemplative space for us to actually be, just to be, why? Well, and I think that's where we have to acknowledge, you know, what's happening around us. Again, talking about being this malleable clay or the porousness of our soul, 
we are constantly being formed by something. And a lot of the some things that are forming us, unfortunately, in this world are very opposite of the way of Jesus. And they have a lot of glitter. It's kind of like a squirrel, you know, they're like, mm-hmm. or like, you know, mm, that's good. just easily distracted. And so while our souls can really long for, um, like the psalmist said, like in a dry and weary desert, we just long. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But even in that longing, unfortunately, we're easily distracted. Here's the fascinating irony too. You mentioned that fasting is like a, uh, it's an engineered wilderness into which we enter. We are denying ourselves. So we're leaving the, the affluence. We're leaving the provision of comfort and food when we fast. And really some of the difficulty that we run into with Sabbath, with silence, with solitude, is because those practices are designed to create a metaphorical, and in some mm-hmm. cases, if you go and do like three days out in the desert, a literal desert uh, to create space. And that is can be terrifying mm-hmm. for some of us, completely overwhelming. It can sound totally impossible. How could I just shut down my life for three days? Um, but these are the spaces and places of vital importance for you, late modern Western Christian um, and, I, and I'll prove my point right now just by asking you, are you tired? Do you feel full or do you feel empty? Do you feel rested and ready to roll or do you feel exhausted and just wanting to tap out? Mm-hmm. You see, I can, I'm not a prophet, but I know the state of the souls in this modern moment and I know the state of my own soul. Mm-hmm. And the only way out of these is these metaphorical deserts to go and find space and place where we can intentionally create space to be with the spirit and to grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Christians that really emphasize these practices and develop them, you know, in the early, I think like third to fifth centuries. The desert mothers and fathers. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they came to be called the desert fathers and mothers because they fled their cities where Christians held power and affluence instead of sitting on the margins. So the Christians were now taking the, you know, the dominant spot and they had all this had put them in power mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. and they had all this influence and they were no longer sitting on the margins. So these desert mothers and fathers fled to the, to the desert to intentionally, um, allow the purification of their souls of, you know, the world's temptations and the world's draw. And so today, you know, we have so much access to anything and everything. We have so much affluence that honestly, we have to, as Christians, create our own deserts of self-denial because we're drowning in that. Yeah. We're really drowning in it. Mm-hmm. And so the contemplative practices really counterform us more and more deeply into union with God. And that's that's really what the contemplative practices are all about. It's about union with God. If you think about it too, so that you don't feel like you're eating the elephant in one bite here, you already have practices that are shaping you. Mm-hmm. We all have these unconscious rhythms that regulate our lives. We already have these um, ways of going about things. So Lex, yeah, I mean, some like, random ones. Literally like brushing your teeth every day. That's a regular, I mean, we hope you're brushing your teeth every day, 
two times a day. <laughs> and flossing. <laughs> and and flossing. flossing. My coffee prep in the morning. She was is telling totally us he brushes his three times a day because he's extra. <laughs> um, but even things like, you know, you wake up to have your morning ritual of preparing coffee. Yeah. That is a practice and a regular rhythm of so many people in this world where you get up and you instantly go and, you know, turn on the kettle, you mm. grind your beans. It's like this regular rhythm. As well, we have regular meal times where most people uh, have, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you know, you're going to have this regular practice of eating a meal at a certain time. And even things like, honestly, driving to work. It's crazy to me how much you can be driving in your car on complete autopilot and you can get to your destination and be like, uh, was how I did even, I get here? Yeah, how did I even get here? That is, you are able to go into that autopilot mode because you, it's a regular rhythm and practice of your life. And so these things, all these things, these practices that we have in our life um, are part of what we do each yeah. day. And so the and modern world is forming us for speed and production yeah. and success by its standards. And so we have to start to consider like, what's forming our rhythms. Yep. Yeah, there's healthy practices, there's neutral practices, mm-hmm. and there's really unhealthy practices. And the Christian must recognize that much of the patterning of modern society is, I think, and I'm, I don't think this is overstated, I think it's satanically inspired to deform our souls. This is part of the battle that we are in. I, I, I was talking with my wife yesterday, I wanted to get this into the conversation today. I've been doing a lot of reading lately and in a lot of different spaces. and. And so I want to just talk about some of that stuff because without these practices really being implemented in a very disciplined and intentional and rhythmic way, you and I, we don't know actually what it means to be human. And we are no longer capable of actually seeing each other. And we're no longer actually able to live in the world as we were designed to live in the world. That is as cultivators and rulers and equality bringers and justice doers. And so for most of us, apart from the practices, if we don't engage in Sabbath, silence, solitude, fasting, deep embodied prayer, well, reality then just, and life, life in general is really just background noise to our busyness. Life just becomes background noise to our busyness and our exhaustion. Do you feel that way, friend? That life itself is just kind of background noise to your low-grade fatigue? and burnout, these practices are such a gift to us. And the stats are abysmal here in Western culture, particularly in the United States, anxiety, depression, Mm -hmm. through the roof, suicide rates. I was talking with a fireman yesterday that said he just feels like almost every other call, this brother's going out and picking up some dead kid that's just been completely overwhelmed. You know, prior to the pandemic, it was already bad. 8% of the population would say, I am clinically depressed. Post 2020, 28%. More than a quarter of our population would say, I am struggling with deep clinical depression. We are the, we have the highest rates of quote unquote unhappiness since the Great Depression. And it is because our souls are worn thin and tattered. And so this call to the practices is so important. this may or may not be helpful for some of you. I've been reading a, a, a new sociologist guy that one of our community leaders turned me on to, Hartmut Rosa. He's a German guy. And he wrote this bit. His PhD was um, around this idea of resonance. He's a really interesting character. 
And he, his thesis is that modern society is wearing itself thin and we are actually muted to existence. Existence in life is muted. We no longer resonate with creation in each other. And uh, well, the quote that really took me um, from his book was the in the uncontrollability of the world. He says this, the driving cultural force of that form of life we call modern is the idea, the hope and desire that we can make the world controllable. Did you catch that? The everything about the modern world teaches us, tells us that we must make everything in our environment controllable. Then uh, Rosa goes on and he says, yet it is only in encountering the uncontrollable. Now we're getting to the contemplative life, the uncontrollable that we really experience the world. Only then do we feel touched, moved, alive. A world that is fully known in which everything has been planned and mastered is a dead world. This, this is profound because for late modern human beings, uh, the world has become what Rosa calls a point of aggression. When you wake up for your day, what are you going to go and do? You're going to go what? Aggressively crush it. You're going to murder it. You're going to kill it. You're going to control it. And this is not the way that God intended us to live in creation as reactionary and crushing killers. He intended us to cultivate and receive creation and receive each other as a gift. Rosa goes on, everything that appears to us must be known, mastered, conquered, and made useful. So I would, I would say underlying the, the systemic societal anxiety and depression is the myth that we can control all things and that we must control all things to flourish. And so we find ourselves not flourishing because we cannot control things. And really the contemplative life comes to a place and says, I concede my control. That's right. Mm-hmm. I receive and I rest. That which is, is present and I don't need to master it. I don't need to conquer it. I don't need to kill it, crush it, murder it, control it. I need to walk in it and with it as a present child of God. This is what the contemplative practices grant us and form in us. And that is why they are so difficult because nothing in our world says be still and nothing in our world says receive and nothing in our world says slow down. And that's why these disciplines are so hard. So the, the ancient word for these practices that we're talking about here is, is what the monks called ascesis. Ascesis. Now you learned a new word. It, it derives from the idea of being the, the ascetic, that is exercising severe self-discipline. And this self-discipline is designed to turn us from worldly passions, to slow us down mm-hmm. and to turn us from these fleshy deformations of our soul. I hope you're all tracking with that. Yeah, the wisdom of the contemplative tradition really teaches that there's these like two primary obstacles that can cut us off from the knowledge and the vision um, that God creates in our union with him, this unshakable joy. And there's these, these barriers, I guess you could say, that can cut us off from that union where we have this unshakable joy. And I would say, you know, the biggest barrier... Um, in this day and age is just the day-to-day add up or the total sum of our worldly passions and desires. You know, these- This these, is like old school Bible stuff you're talking about. Yeah, this worldly is Worldly passions and desires. Yeah, you know, just those, those fleshy, not the holy, beautiful God-given desires that we're given, 
but those fleshy desires, you know, that are really byproducts of the fall and our sin. And we all have these malformed desires and passions and, and they're really rooted in the kingdom of this world. And so our hearts, um, you know, even as we talked about earlier, we're easily distracted with the glittery and the shiny. And then as we get distracted, we can become enslaved and it makes it difficult for us to see beyond what this world offers us as the good life, quote unquote. And so much of the Christian life is learning to peel our fingers off of the world's goods and grasp union with God and like see that as what is the good life. It's super hard because Instagram influencers are super convincing that flourishing is accomplished through their instruction. Um, But we turn. And the second barrier that the contemplative wisdom traditions give us that keep us from this this life of joy and contentment is... um, and this is very abstract, but it's our complete reliance on our five senses and our rational intellect alone. Um, The contemplatives would say that we know God from our heart, not the beating organ in our chest, but from our deepest volitional being. Jesus, like our soul. Yeah, our soul is a good way or the deepest seat of our volitional will. Mm -hmm. It's the place where Jesus in his his sage wisdom would say, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. St. Paul would describe this place as producing groans and utterances that only the Holy Spirit can interpret. There's something deep beyond what we can touch, taste, feel, sense, smell. Mm -hmm. And there's something deep even beyond what the human mind and our analytical and rational capacities can, can understand. And so the contemplative tradition would say that we, we lose some of our spiritual attunement and awareness and joy and sense of, um, of peace because everything is focused in the physical world and we use only our rational brains and only our five senses uh, can give us what is real. And in that, we lose our mystical connection to heaven and this union with the Holy Spirit. And we don't allow for mystery and spiritual realities beyond our ability to define and control and so our souls are languishing in mm-hmm. that. We're incapable because... Yeah, we're like anemic. Anemic. We want to control even our spirituality. Mm-hmm. And our father is saying, you have to lay down and become like a little child. You don't get to control this. The contemplative wisdom traditions would actually say that at the very core of the human existential predicament, or said more simply a lot of our psychological, emotional problems, the turmoil and the suffering that we experience as modern Western Christians, the contemplative tradition would say, the core of that is this split, this split between heaven and earth and this inability to concede our control even of that and rest in the mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so with the contemplative life, I mean, obviously there's there's barriers to it, but if we can have the perspective or keep in mind that the end goal of the contemplative life is union with Jesus by pure faith. It does take, I mean, we got to be honest, like if you're sitting in silence for any, even five minutes of your day, five, 30 minutes, whatever it is, there's some faith that, that has to be born through that process and trust that a work is happening that's unseen, that that's taking place in your soul. But the, the end goal of those moments is union with Jesus. And it's, 
and it's unobstructed by any type of disturbance. And it's not based on, you know, our feelings or sensations or these experiences or visions. It really is the end goal really is union with Christ. Yeah. You know, if you've been tracking along with this sort of neo-monastic movement within the church, I'd like you to lean in here for just a moment because I, I have been doing more reading and there is a subtle danger in this modern monastic movement. And it's that we would make our contemplative practices more about the experience mm-hmm. in them than about what God is designing a desert through. So you're meaning like, oh, I just spent like five minutes in silence and I feel so much peace from that. Yeah. So that you're saying like that experience that we might come, that yes. might come in the moment of silence. That becomes the focus. Yeah, okay. So when we really look to the guides and the mentors, uh, the spiritual masters of antiquity, let's take, for example, St. John of the Cross. If you've been tracking along with this sort of neo-monastic flavor, you've heard his name and you've probably heard the dark night of the soul, which is uh, a stage in the Christian progression towards union with God that we will all go through in some measure. But John's prequel to that little book was a book called The Ascent of Mount Carmel. And in The Ascent of Mount Carmel, John was laying out what he called the dark night of the senses. He was laying out how the Christian must move away from basing their Christianity on their five senses and their personal experiences. The end goal was what he called detachment. Detachment is not the numbing of all desire. It is the redirection of all desire to its proper place. So the, I mean, we're deep in the weeds now of real contemplative Christianity, that it's not about making a time of silence be super peaceful. It is more about silence being a desert in which we are purified from our need to be peaceful, to believe that we are one with God. Did that sentence make sense? What I just said? It's not about being silent so that our body fills up with peace. That may or may not happen. But in the ascent to Mount Carmel, St. John of the Cross would say, spiritual directors, you must train novices to not attach themselves to their personal experience too much. Let me give you an example of this. We were in San Francisco with some friends doing some stuff with this community of churches and a dear uh, friend of ours, she was wrestling through a major decision And in this process of wrestling through her decision, she was sharing with us that usually God gives her visions. God will give her confirming visions or an embodied peace accompanied by some sort of imaginative moment that confirms this decision is the way to go. Like a specific word. Yeah, an experience. Like God speaks to me. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. And as she was sharing, I just had St. John of the Cross in my head and I was able to just share with her you know, it may be that your father is inviting you to a new stage of maturity where he's not going to give you a confirming vision. He's not going to give you a confirming embodied sense of peace. He wants you by pure faith to trust in his love and that you are unified with him and that the decision you make will be governed by him regardless of whether there was vision, whether there was a sense of overwhelming peace or embodied experience. This is... This is why these practices are so so difficult. Because the practices of fasting, silence, solitude, embodied prayer, Sabbath, they're eventually leading us to detach from the five senses and to detach from our rational ability to control everything. It It is a deeper letting go. And in this letting go, we are experiencing what the ancients called purgation, 
literally from which we get our word purging, this dependence on anything in this world, including our embodied sensations, including our own imaginations, um, is the process that contemplative practices are leading us to. The reason I bring this up is at the, at the onset of this neo-monastic movement of which Alexis and I and our friends and our church are a deep, integral part, there's a danger here because we really are, all of us, novices leading novices. Mm-hmm. And um, we are in a place where there aren't a lot of living mentors and guides, especially in the Protestant tradition, uh, the Jesuits and our Catholic brothers have longstanding traditions of spiritual direction that can give us insight and help in this process. But we do not want to become the blind leading the blind. Mm-hmm. And so this union is actually taking us somewhere. This union is is moving us forward, stillness to activity, speech or silence to speech. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really out of that union, out of you know, that contemplative union that, that we are sent, that we are called to go. And, you know, from these wilderness experiences, um, we're called to go and fulfill the great commission. Even Jesus's final command, you know, wasn't to his disciples, wasn't to go and be still. It was to actually go and make disciples. And so we learn from Jesus's life that of course, as he was making disciples, he regularly took time to be still And he would take time to go into the wilderness to watch and pray and listen and be strengthened and then, and to have that union with his father. And then he was sent back out. And I mean, literally before Jesus even began his ministry, he was out in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting, alone, silence, solitude, attack, all that you can imagine in that wilderness experience. And that was what catapulted him into his ministry. Learning to trust in the suffering, Mm -hmm. learning to trust in the lack, to be content in all things, strengthened by the Holy Spirit. These amazing promises that we have handed to us. Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, as we engage in silence, it's in the silence that the Spirit is forming our words and our speech to interact with the world and, and really to shape words that are full of grace and truth and love and kindness. And, and it's in the stillness that the Spirit is actually animating and fueling our, really our lived action and interaction with other humans. And, you know, when we abstain from food, it's during those moments that the spirit is feeding our souls, you know, on the bread of life that really satisfies, that satisfies us in a way that this world will never satisfy us. And so I just actually wanted to give you guys a few resources that might be helpful for understanding and living more into the contemplative life. Um, Of course, you know, each week, uh, we release uh, the contemplates. Those are ways that you can engage in a more contemplative life. Um, Pete Gregg has a wonderful book out called How to Pray. And he talks about praying through the Lord's Prayer. But in that book, he also talks about centering prayer, which is an incredible practice that um, I know we've really used. And then of course, um, even like a Lectio Divina type journal, uh, neighbors sells those, but you can also go to Lectio Divina journal.com. I don't know if it's .com, but just look up Lectio Divina Journal and you can find there. And it's a way of slowing down reading through the scriptures. Of course, it's not taking in the whole of scripture, but it's these little verses that teaches you how to slowly read through the text and let it really become an embodied experience. And what you're hearing here 
is, I hope, I, I hope you're hearing the need for intentionality and making a plan and giving yourself tools. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about being still and silent and never get still and never get silent. <laughs> and there's a second aspect to this. The contemplative life, as I've been saying, is all about the reversal of our need to control, to go out and murder and crush and kill life. <laughs> so like take, for example, the Lectio Divina Journal. I was in a conversation with somebody the other day and they were saying, I just, it feels so random to me. I, I just don't like that it's not like a consistent Bible program. And that's actually true. Uh, the, the Lectio Divina journals are taken from the common book of prayer. The, the lectionary writers did indeed have a plan and they put in specific texts for specific reasons, but it does feel random in our journals. But I was um, reminded that Lectio Divina is actually the practice of coming with no control over the text. So for example, when we come to read in a Lectio Divina format, we're not coming just to get information. We're coming to let the text formation, form us. Mm-hmm. And so even our inability to control what text we read that day <laughs> is a form of contemplative reading. Do you see how subtle this is, but how powerful the shift is in your being when you approach the Bible saying, whatever the text says to me today is what my father has. And I receive that today. Yeah. And actually I've been in this, um, this wellness class and we've been talking about the seven dimensions of wellness. And one of the things that I've loved this, just like little nugget that I've gotten out of this class was the concept of tiny habits. And I'm sure all of you guys have heard of tiny habits. It's not a new concept, but for me, it's had a lot of impact recently. Yeah, I just picked <laughs> up on a new author who she calls it micro resolutions. Micro resolutions. Not, not like year long. I'm going to, I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year and all those things. It's like a tiny little resolution to, I'm going to do five minutes of silence once a week. Yeah. That's small and achievable. Mm-hmm. So with tiny habits or micro resolutions, it's, choosing to start doing something new right after you do something regularly. So for example, again, using the you know regular rhythm of brushing our teeth, we all brush our teeth first thing in the morning, hopefully. And right after that regular habit of brushing your teeth, you implement a new habit. So you begin practicing right after I brush my teeth, I'm going to spend five minutes of silence. And so then brushing your teeth becomes the trigger for your spiritual practice of five minutes of silence. And so I just want to encourage you guys just to start somewhere. And it literally may be like right after I brush my teeth, I'm going to spend five minutes in silence and just make that, just start with that one little thing. Or maybe for you, your soul's more in a place where you're like, I actually want to start trying to implement Sabbath because you haven't had Sabbath. Okay. So then, you know, whatever your allotted day is or your hours, just start there. And, um, depending on your relationship with food. Maybe it's one meal Mm -hmm. once a week or Or, one 24 hour day mm -hmm. once a month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even, you know, with the fasting, we know that that can be, Mm -hmm. you know, a tricky thing. So I'd encourage you if fasting is, you know, a little more gray for you, reach out to someone that, you know, a pastor or a community group leader or someone in your community and just talk about these things to see if that's really something that you should implement. But all this to say, you know, tiny habit, micro resolution, whatever it may be, implementing this contemplative way of life is so beneficial for your soul because ultimately it is about the end goal. Again, is about your union with Christ. Dear soul, can you hear these words and receive them? Your father does not want you to live exhausted. Your life shouldn't be just background noise to your busyness and low-grade fatigue and anxiety. Your life is your life. And your father loves you. 
He wants you to live life to the fullest. Jesus came to give us life and life abundant. And our admonition is to not miss it. Alexis and I and our team, our friends, this church, we have literally staked our whole purpose in living our lives wholly and fully for Jesus, present to each other, present to Jesus. And everything in our culture and everything in the metaphysical realm around us resists that. And so these practices, the contemplative life is a great act of war. It is a great act of resistance, but it is a life that is truly full and truly flourishing. And it ends both with an already union in our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and a full union to come wherein we will everlastingly live in perfect joy. Amen. Amen. We'll call it a wrap. Shalom, friends. Shalom. Shalom.